Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're good. If you're not used to it yet, we're not playing the fancy videos and stuff like that at the moment because the browser's been glitching. So you're just getting us straight in. So you're not getting the blaring music either. Many of you are complaining about that. Hope you're good. I'm Jack Chew. This afternoon is yet another Chewing It Over at lunchtime, 12.30 till 1 o'clock. We come to you live across various different forms of social media. I'm just looking at myself there. I'm feeling quite naked. Where's my little frame gone? There we go. That's better. Feeling better for that. So I'm really excited for today's session. Long coming, really. Darren's been very patient with me. We've had to rearrange a couple of times, but uh, we've been wanting to get Darren on the show because we wanted to talk about long COVID. And I put a message out there on social media saying, who should we have some long COVID discussions with? And there will be a few. And uh, one of the names that kept coming up is Darren because he's been kind enough to share his experiences with long COVID as a patient. He's a physio by background. He'll tell you more about this himself. But it was just uh, really interesting to then look into Darren and Darren's story and, and, and some of the advocates work he's been doing to share especially because there's some mistakes that are being made especially that in the therapist community there seems to be some some of our instincts cut against um the uh, sensible uh, thing to do with in this circumstance and so i'm sure we'll go into the detail on that but he's been he's been someone who's been really generous uh, with his time and even prior to this of course someone who is in the uh, you know advocacy and activist space and and, and generating lots of interesting uh, conversation and so it's been brilliant to, to grab him on the show hopefully the as ever the technology works okay uh, please do drop your comments in in the, in the chat function uh, i know what you like lot of like when we've got a guest on especially a new guest you're often quiet until the last minute but please um Darren's uh, encouraged any questions that come in, especially on this important topic. So let's get stuck into it, um, and please do get stuck in in the in the chat function. So hopefully, without further ado, Darren, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hello, Jack. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me. Um, so firstly, just tell tell folk a little bit about you, and and then also just dive straight into your your sort of background, especially as as COVID hit. Yeah, sure. No, thank you very much for having me today. So, um, as you said, my name is Darren Brown. Um, I'm a cisgendered uh, gay white man with preferred pronouns he, him. Uh, I'm of mixed English and Irish heritage. I live in London in the UK. Um, I'm clinically and academically a physiotherapist. And my background is in the area of HIV, disability and rehabilitation. Uh, however, as you mentioned, I am also a person living with long COVID. Uh, so I contracted coronavirus in March 2020. And we're coming up to what might be affectionately known as my COVID covid anniversary, if you want to call it that, <laughs> which is I'm now coming up to a year after uh, yeah. contracting coronavirus and still living with the episodic and unpredictable nature of long COVID. Mm. No, it's and it's fascinating because, of course, you are in. You know, I'm, I speak as an MSK physio here, where obviously our our um, we weren't necessarily seeing, especially in the early stages, many coronavirus patients. However, you were, and that's one of the places I imagine that you were exposed. Um, but it's just that your experience was with a physio hat, and now, of course, with the, the lived experience of it yourself. Um, how did the early stages of the pandemic and before you contracted coronavirus, how did that uh, play out and, and how was that for you? Yeah, so obviously I am kind of sitting in this multiple hatted situation, aren't I? I've got this dual perspective of being both a healthcare professional and a physiotherapist, but now also living with long COVID. So my, my, my journey, obviously it's a year long, so I'm not gonna bore you with all the fine details, but you know, like back in March, 2020, it's when we started seeing 
the global pandemic really coming to light in the United Kingdom. Uh, so where I work, I work in the NHS, I work at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. I, I, as I said, I specialize in HIV. So I work on an infectious diseases unit. Um, and where we work, we've got a ward that's full of side rooms for particular infection control reasons. And so the first patients that came onto our, into our hospital came onto our ward. Um, and I contracted coronavirus pretty early on actually. Um, so it was the 20th of March 2020. And I wasn't treating these patients, actually, I would just happened to be on the same ward that these patients were on. Okay. So it's very difficult to know whether that was something that I acquired from occupational exposure or due to the fact that I live in a city that was sure. then the, the highest epicenter in the UK. Uh, so um, impossible to know where I contracted coronavirus from, but almost kind of irrelevant, in fact, because I got the virus. Um, and so I ended up being I'm off work for what was the standard time, uh, which was 10 days. I was acutely unwell. Um, I was really unwell with a whole cluster of different acute symptoms. I think most people are pretty familiar with now, you know, the, the overwhelming sense of breathlessness. Uh, I didn't have a cough, uh, but I did have uh, all over body pain, fevers. Um, I had the, the classic loss of sense of smell and taste. Uh, I was in bed for three days, but after three days, I kind of bounced out of bed. I started to be the physio that I am. I tried to do a bit of activity, a little bit of gentle yoga to start with and things. And then after 10 days, I went back to work. Uh, but actually during that 10 day period, I had my sickness and I was cared for by my partner. Um, and then I unfortunately gave him coronavirus. Uh, so I then cared for him in those 10 day periods. And I went back to work. And when I went back to work, um, as many people were in acute hospital settings, were then responding to this global pandemic. And many of us were redeployed. And I was one of those staff as well that was redeployed. So I was redeployed to acute medical settings. So that was for expediting discharge for patients out of hospital. So sorting out their, 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 their requirements to get home. Um, and then I was redeployed further to um, a non-invasive ventilation setting and then also to intensive care. Care. And actually, after my acute episode of coronavirus, I worked full time for six months. Um, and that included all of the changes to our working schedules that was happening. We were doing day shifts. We were doing evening shifts. We were doing overnight shifts. Many of us were sleeping in hotels next to the hospital because we couldn't get home because there was limited transport or we just needed to rest straight after work so that we could go back in the next day. Um, so our lives were obviously turned upside down. But during that six month period where I returned back to work, I had some symptoms. I had some fatigue. I had a bit of breathlessness. I had, I also had some discoordination. I kept tripping up the stairs. Um, but I didn't really know that I had long COVID. I just thought maybe I've got a little bit, in fact, I didn't even know what long COVID was. I, I just no. thought I had, I just thought I had some little bit of a, a tail end of having had a virus you know we've all had viruses in the past where you know it could take a few months to get better you have a little bit of niggles here there and everywhere but with time these things get better and i just thought that was it really um and also i was working i don't like using war language so i'm not going to use that language but working in the in the healthcare setting responding to a global pandemic um and everyone was shattered so, well, so that, that is something that's a really uh, definitely a point i wanted to make is that 
we, it's sometimes hard for us to think back 12 months, uh, six months away, especially because it's been so different. But at that time, it will have been really difficult, I imagine, to differentiate between the exhaustion that you'd expect from the fact that it's such an unusual circumstance, so stressful, uh, the precautions that, that were needed to be provided for, for, for staff and for patients means that it would it would have been hard to tease out the fact that this is actually something that's related to it, especially at a time where we weren't really naming, I don't think, look, long COVID maybe had started to be coined, but there needed to be, the, the long bit, there needed to be enough time to have passed for the majority of infections or that first wave particularly, for us to some, come to notice that it's it's messing around with metabolic factors, it's, it's affecting fatigue particularly and starting to represent some other conditions that I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, what, what, how did you manage at any point to tease those things out well I won't lie for the first six months I had no clue I had absolutely no clue and which is why I thought I was doing my best physio role I was self-rehabilitating I was um trying to do a graded exercise program gradually introducing more within my limits responding to my body feeling like I could listen to my body and understand what my needs were having a healthy diet, trying to keep as socially connected as I could, you know, trying to keep my mental and my physical health well during all of that time. But yeah, had had zero clue what was the, the fatigue that everyone was experiencing because during the first wave, everyone threw themselves at this head on mm-hmm. and everybody wanted to be part of the response and everybody was willing to step up and be part of that response. And so everybody was shattered. But that that question around how did I tease it apart, it wasn't until I crashed in September 2020 that I then realized that I actually had a problem. Mm. So I was doing some general exercise. And actually, the weekend before I crashed, me and my boyfriend just went out for a cycle. We um, hired a Boris bike, so you know, the Santander cycles, because we were offered like a, a free hire scheme through work. And we yeah. just went for a cycle one Saturday. And it wasn't a particularly effortful cycle. You know, like we were trying to keep it free. So we were stopping every 20 minutes to park the bikes. So it wasn't like it was like <laughs> a full on cycle. We were just doing a bit of cycling oh, around really? London. And then by the next day, I felt like my body had started to give up. Like I really struggled to walk to the supermarket. And actually, my boyfriend had to carry the shopping bag because I said, God, I just feel like my body's not doing this today. And then by the Monday, I couldn't really walk to work, which is a one kilometer walk from the tube station to the hospital, which is a walk I do every day. And by the time I walked into work, I was pale. I was sweaty. I had palpitations. I was short of breath and I was profusely sweating. My body felt like it was literally giving up on me. And I went home and because I was sent home. And then at that point, I took myself to bed and I became bed bound for a week. I physically couldn't get out of bed. It felt like somebody had unplugged me, like, like somebody had switched the lights off. There was zero energy and there was no way of getting it back. And everything felt like an effort. Like people have asked me like how I emotionally felt at that time. I've got no idea because thinking was hard work. Like I was just lying in bed, waiting to get better and sleeping and sleeping and sleeping. And it actually took me so that I've called that in that time period, my crash. And that's when I started to learn that there were already existing communities of people that were living with the long-term sequelae or effects of coronavirus had coined this term long COVID 
and I realized, Christ almighty, I, I'm, I think this is what I've got. This sounds like me. So I, I joined some of these groups online, these peer support groups, and realized that some of the experiences I was having were not actually that unusual. And I was not alone in these experiences. Mm. And that crash, if I was to summarize the amount of time it took me to improve from that crash, it took four months to get nearly back to baseline to where I was before my crash. That and that will surprise so many people that the the durations of all of this, especially the the period of time between your episode of of having being acutely unwell with the coronavirus and then your crash, that that gap. Mm. So that that's that's an alarming feature of it in itself because I think so many are going to be moved into a sense of security in many ways. And I think that this, this, I'm sorry, I'm just getting a bit of a. Don't know if it's my microphone echoing slightly. Sorry. Bear with me one second, there. So just a bit of a technical. <laughs> okay, sorry everyone. Hopefully this is a, a bit better. Um, so the complacency that can sit in, set in from the fact that we think, uh, oh, it was a sometimes it's a mild a mild issue. Um, obviously, in your case, you, you were you were poorly. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, some people sometimes then you hear so many stories of people trying to feeling like they've shaken it off. They get a few. You know, they try to even sometimes be cautious, and then a few weeks later or a few months later, even as long as six months. In your case, you do something that any other time would have been something or nothing, and actually, that then obviously took you uh, to, to bed for a week you know people find that that to be a scary thing now it's interesting because you're saying it wasn't as scary because you couldn't even hold as many cognitive loads at the time as you started to then climb climb out of that and started to notice the community one of the things that um, you've spoken on but i've found it to be really nice that it's it's an emergent patient coin term that then has sort of set the parameters around what it is what it is and how it feels and it's been really truly emergent rather than it being sort of a medically coined term that then has its symptoms parameterized. Was that something that, as you realized that, was that reassuring or was it, was it also scary because it was so unknown? How did that feel at that time? Yeah, so like, if it, so I think to answer that question, it might be useful for maybe me to summarize what happened during that four month period of, of attempted recovery. So I mentioned, you know, bed bound for a week, I was in flat bound for another month because I live in a second floor flat with no lift access, couldn't get down the stairs. Um, after that, I then started, started to slightly improve, but I had to walk with a walking stick uh, for about two weeks because I really struggled with my energy levels. I, I, I bought something called a flip stick, which is amazing. Basically, it's a walking stick that's got a handle that turns into a seat. So I was able to like sit down on this walking stick, which was so needed just to like get out of the flat. Um, but I was having these symptoms that were very strange. I was having this really quite um, significant tachycardia or minimal movement where I would be walking from one room of my flat to the other and my heart rate would go from resting 60 beats per minute to 180 beats per minute. And you could feel it in your chest going and it would make you breathless. Um, I was given some advice and that advice was about rest, pacing, and heart rate monitoring, trying to keep my heart rate below a particular threshold, which is called the um, anaerobic threshold, um, to, to try and prevent the onset of a symptom that I was experiencing called post-exertion malaise. Now, post-exertion malaise is 
pretty much a, um, a very difficult symptom to sometimes describe because it's very, very diverse in its presentation. But basically, activity or exertion can exacerbate your symptoms, make them worse. And sometimes that can present as all over body fatigue. It can affect the way that your brain works. So the people describe like this brain fog where you have difficulty with memory, concentration, processing or word finding difficulties. And then also can present as pain. When it was at my most worst, I would get pain in my thighs. So my quads would just be excruciating and it actually felt like my bones were burning um, when I had this pain. So the, the, the management techniques of rest pacing and heart rate monitoring were trying to mitigate uh, that, sit, that experience of post-exertion malaise. But the episodic nature of this over that time period was really difficult to navigate this boom-bust cycle. But eventually I then, after two months of being signed off work, returned back to work on a phased return to work. And that slowly increased my days, hours and duration of work and the type of work that I was doing. And then after four months, I got to the point where I was officially ending my phased return to work. I'm still not working full time. I take a day off a week using my annual leave. Um, so we're now getting to the sixth month period of me living with long COVID and I'm still not 100%. Uh, I still have days where I struggle um, with some of those symptoms. But when you, when you asked around how was I with that? Actually, I don't know that I was a very mo emotionally labile at times. I think unsurprisingly, considering how tired I was, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I hate the word tired, fatigue is also not very descriptive. It's an all body symptom, total body shutdown, turn the lights off. But I was just exhausted and you just got zero resilience and energy. And I was just crying over everything. Um, and well, even, even malaise can sometimes be a, feel a bit mi too mild in some ways because yeah, of the way yeah. it's used in our language, isn't it? But yeah. I think our language is very uh, well suited to describing some of the symptoms <laughs> sure. that are actually so profoundly disabling. Uh, um, yeah. but, but the the overwhelming sense and emotion that I had was this sense of uncertainty or worry about the future. Now, this is not a new uh, descriptive. Uh, it's something that maybe we'll come on to later that I've learned from the context of HIV disability and rehabilitation. Um, and, and But what we know is that for me, that uncertainty was about, will I get better? Is this going to be long term? What are the implications on my ability to perform my uh, life and social roles? What about work? And actually, there is an element of that uncertainty that still sits with me now. I'm only working four days a week. And I think, well, what's the implications of me for my future with this? How does this impact on me and my ability to perform my roles? And also my identities in those roles, you know, I'm a very proud physio and have been very vocal about that for many years. And so mm. there are many feelings that come with this. And I think that's why it's so important that, um, that we, we recognize how disabling this can be, but also the episodic and unpredictable nature of that. I mentioned in the intro about the fact that some of our physio instincts uh, to get people moving and to, uh, and to sort of, lean into rehabilitation as a functional improvement, break things down perhaps, but also just aspire to make the body more resilient, more robust mm. and challenge ourselves in that direction. Some of those instincts seem to have, especially at the wrong tempo, shall we say, uh, have been known to really exacerbate. And the, the ME community, uh, chronic fatigue community, um, have, have been really vocal about the fact that that is something that can really set people back. It seems to be something similar within long COVID. Do you think there is something to be said for us trying to get the message out? And I know you have been doing to, to just temper some of that a little bit and just to go steadier. 
Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree, Jack. Like, I think if we if we think about um, rehabilitation, so we know rehabilitation is about health and functioning in everyday life, right? It's a fundamental service under universal health coverage. Mm-hmm. So rehabilitation is important, but rehabilitation is not just exercise. Exercise is an intervention within the broad umbrella of rehabilitation. And exercise itself or physical activity is not universally always going to be the right thing for every human being, just like medicine. We don't prescribe medicines to everybody irrespective of their health conditions. And we need to be a little bit more purposefully complex and nuanced about this and understand that we can critically appraise physical activity and exercise as a rehabilitation intervention for different health conditions. And one of the things I will say is I am incredibly grateful to the knowledge and skills of communities of people living with MECFS, so myalgic encephalomyelitis, that have predicted long COVID before long COVID was even around as a word and a communities and have been actually incredible allies and supportive to us by warning us about the potential implications of things like physical activity and exercise when experiencing symptoms like post-exertion malaise. And so for me, I do feel that as a community of rehabilitation professionals, as physiotherapists, we've often been very, very, very promoting of physical activity and exercise because the evidence is there that it's really good for some people with certain health conditions. And that's often founded in evidence and science that it's safe and effective. But currently, we do not have that evidence that exercise or physical activity and is safe and effective for people living with long COVID. And so we do need to take pause and reflect and think about, is this going to be safe? Now, the reality is, is that physical activity and and exercise may be beneficial for some people living with long COVID, but it may also not be helpful. And in my experience, was not. In Mm. fact, it made me worse. It created my disability in the longer term, unbeknownst to me. So my experiences are mine alone. They're they're not universal to everybody. And thousands of people will have different experiences to me. And so that's why we do need to be purposefully complex and think about this and appreciate that caution is worthwhile considering. And the caution that often a lot of us are talking about at the moment are, are, are three key things. So one is around um, post-exertion malaise. So make sure that we exclude it, but also to continually monitor for it amongst people living with long COVID, just like we should for people with MECFS, before thinking about physical activity and exercise as a safer rehabilitation intervention. The second is about potential cardiac involvement. So we know that some of the evidence at the minute is suggesting that people living with long COVID have impairment of their organs including their hearts. So uh, there's MRI studies that are showing that 30% of people have cardiac impairment. Now, we know that in the context of exercise, pericarditis and myocarditis is a contraindication to exercise interventions for six months. So we need to be careful with that as well. We need to monitor those things. And then lastly, we are seeing that because coronavirus is primarily a disease that's contracted through the respiratory symptom, that there are respiratory symptoms and impairments. And we are seeing that because it's an interstitial disease, that people are desaturating on exertion. And so the three things we should be monitoring for are post-exertion malaise, potential cardiac involvement, and desaturation on exertion. So if we monitor for those things and they're not there, 
great, exercise may work for people and that's fantastic, but we do need to be safe and we do need to make sure that we don't cause any harm. And so by monitoring for these things, we may be safer in our approaches. But you know, the summary of all of this is we don't have the evidence yet on what is safe and effective rehab intervention. Because the precautionary principle, as well as the Hippocratic Oath, couple well there, really, with regards to first do no harm, but then also apply appropriate caution to the amount of novelty that existent in this space. I don't think necessarily, and it's not just physiotherapists, but I think anything other than medicinal interventions, pharmaceutical interventions, we don't think well about dosage. I think that sometimes we're a bit clumsy. I think as physios, and I understand why, we've always had these windows for dosage rather than hard and fast ones. And so I think that this is something that we need to be more thoughtful about is that that's the dosage of activity, especially relative to the individual, is, is really important. Uh, I do apologize. Someone's mentioned in the comments that I'm getting a lot of feedback. Um, I think my my um, my voice is playing back through Darren's microphone, so I'm sorry about that. So fortunately for you lot, I will shut up again in a second. Um, but before I, before I do, I just want to bring in and, and bring on screen a couple of comments that have come in. Um, very proud of you, Darren. I believe physios aren't well recognised for their tremendous contribution in this pandemic. I just wondered your thoughts on that. Do you feel do you feel that there is a an under recognition of, of physios and therapists in this? Well, I want to say personally thank you to that person. I can't see who said that, but that's a very nice statement. Um, I think actually what's been really fascinating for me as a physiotherapist uh, watching this as the pandemic has evolved over the last 12 months or longer um, is actually I think there has been quite a lot of recognition of the wider multidisciplinary team, including physios. Physios have frequently featured on the news here in the UK, including BBC News. They've been in news articles. But I think that maybe this is not just in response to this pandemic about maybe how physiotherapists and more broadly allied health professionals are maybe underrepresented or invisible sometimes. I think that's broadly how the public may perceive healthcare. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do to promoting that. But I do think that in this pandemic, there has been some more visibility than usual, which has been great. But um, certainly there, there's, there's what's great around the context of long COVID is that there are three key uh, asks of communities of people living with long COVID which is recognition, research, and rehabilitation. And so clearly, communities of people living with long COVID are clear, they want rehab because of the level of disability that's being experienced. And here, physiotherapists and other AHPs in the rehab field have a key role to play, as long mm. as we are making sure that we are safe and effective. Yeah, and, and doing that, doing that, the appropriateness of that balance that we just described. Um, Joe Turner's uh, posted a lovely comment here. Goodness, Darren, if this is you speaking with any residual brain fog, I can't imagine how clear and knowledgeable you normally sound. This is so helpful. Oh well, thank you very much. Like I won't lie. Like at the moment, I'm on a good day and a good week, uh, and uh, this is this is this is the very nature of this condition, which is the multi-dimensional, episodic, and unpredictable nature. I had a little bit of a mini relapse for about two weeks, which I just recovered from at the beginning of this week. Uh, I had a change in my circumstances. I did an extra shift at work, and for some reason it just seemed to affect me. And by Tuesday, the brain fog was back. I was not able to function in the same way. And it took a couple of weeks to recover from that. But certainly, I know that uh, when I was at my most disabled, I, I took part in a research study, which was by a speech and language therapist at the University of Hong Kong. Um, and she was looking at the neuro-linguistic challenges of people living with long COVID. And at that time, 
I was way below population norms in terms of word finding, processing and linguistic uh, abilities. Uh, so I'm really pleased that someone says that my abilities are, are good at the minute because that means that I'm clearly on a good trajectory. So thank you. Sure, no, absolutely. And, but, and also maybe you know, Joe needs to uh, go and find the fact that Darren, Darren's eloquence is sort of famed as well. And so maybe there's an extra 10% extra he'll find in the coming weeks, which will be good for us all. Um, Lisa Goodwin, do you feel the NHS should be providing more support resources to staff who have had COVID rather than the standard OC health? This is a really difficult one because I don't want to criticise anyone, but I want to appraise what's going on. Sure. So I think the NHS is doing amazing things and working really hard and everybody is responding in every way they can. But I think that where we are right now is that there are not only a very large proportion of people living with long COVID that are desperate for support, but we've also got everybody else living with a chronic health condition that's also desperate for support and how important it is to maintain essential services. I think that one of the calls that has been out there is for coronavirus and therefore within that long COVID to be recognised as an occupational disease because of the risk of exposure through employment for NHS staff. Um, that's been discussed in Parliament. Um, with the all-party parliamentary group on coronavirus and, and should be debated further. Um, I think there is work to do still on how occupational health services, the NHS, and more broadly employers, look at disability and employment rights. Because if we think about how existing return to work programmes are, they're quite linear, start, short period, yeah, yeah. time, you're done. That doesn't really help people that have episodic disabilities. Or and I and I think that we've seen lots of people stepping down from their jobs and roles. Sorry, that's my doorbell going. Uh, <laughs> stepping down from their jobs and roles because of these implications. No, I can, I can. The the episodic nature of it means that that's a that's a huge challenge for departments that are so used to got ill, not quite ready yet, let's phase that return and it's one directional and, uh, and, and, and there are sanctions if that, that isn't then complied with and it's quite rigid. So yeah, that, that will visit that. Uh, we definitely need to visit that even though it is challenging. Um, we're, we're into overtime here, but I'm gonna squeeze in a couple of minutes unless you need to go, Darren, don't, don't let me keep you if, if you do. Go, no, carry on, carry on. You go and get your door if you want. Can oh, I? I? Yeah, of course you can, yeah, no bother. We're going to just try and grab Darren for an extra couple of minutes just because this is this is fascinating stuff. Um, thanks, Katie. I'll make sure I'll get this uh, over to Darren. Oh, he's back already. That's brilliant. Uh, another comment here from Katie. She says, Darren, great to hear you speak again. Really important to share your message and long COVID implications for sufferers. So, yeah, really getting the getting the word out. <laughs> we um, we have a, a comment here from David Poulter, my guest yes, uh, my guest on Monday, David Poulter. He, that was a brilliant episode. It went down a storm. Thank you, David. He said, long COVID mirrors ME, time to reevaluate movement as medicine. Has the virus changed cells? What's your thoughts well, on that in terms oh, of the... Yeah, so, um, okay, shameless plug. So I'm one of the founding members of Long COVID Physio, which is a global peer support group of physiotherapists living with long COVID. Um, unintentionally, we've also turned into an advocacy and educational group as right. well. We're working on guidelines and policy and education and research. Um, one of the things we do is we do podcasts ourselves, Jack. Uh, and uh, we recently had a, uh, a physiotherapist called Jenny Setchell, who's from Australia, talk about uh, and critically appraise exercises medicine. 
And um, one of the reasons that it could be a problem is because of its uh, often the universal belief that it's inherently good. It is good for many people, but it is not um, free of criticism and 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 debate and discussion and and making sure that evidence is there to suggest that it is safe and effective. And I think that that is exactly why there is so much to be learned from the areas of MECFS, who I'd like to also state is an incredibly, um, uh, as, as a population of people who have been really met with an incredible disservice by healthcare globally. And I think that if there is anything that can come out of this pandemic uh, that can help that community, fantastic. And I hope that there is learning in different and additional directions between long COVID and MECFS that can be very, very beneficial for all. We do not know yet, enough about the mechanisms of long COVID yeah. to say what it is and what it isn't. So we can't say it's MECFS and we can't say it's can't. It's not. But mm. it's very important that we learn from other healthcare conditions and we share that knowledge and skills to advance practice, policy, research and interventions. One, around the time that I was asking and putting a call out for, for uh, people to talk to on this show, when I took a deep dive or was signposted to some research, the, the cardiac as well as the sort of mitochondrial defects that seem to be occurring or the strain metabolically, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And, and certainly that precautionary principle we were describing before seems to need to be applied because there's some, there's some novelty to this. We've seen for now uh, over a year people saying it's the flu as if there's so many things that can be uh, you know learned from that or it needs to be dealt with like that and I think that this post-viral fatigue we know that there are circumstances of course and ME sometimes can be a sequel of post-viral there's still so, there's some distinctions that might be need to be made and we need to not be just clumsy for the sake of rushing things and I think that the, the sort of careful analysis is important Another example that we have in MSK that we have all the time is that exercise is medicine. Tell that to someone who's got rhabdo, right? They've literally overdone it and their body and their kidneys are kicking up a fuss. And it's that principle that, that there's no such thing as overdose when it comes to exercise that, it, that is a nonsense. And here's a more acute example of that. So thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate all you're doing. I've got a couple of final requests, which will help me with signposting, actually. Uh, Ashri has asked, hi, Darren, how can I access this podcast on long COVID that you're working on? Can you also tell folk how they can find out more about you and where they find more from you? Absolutely. So you can go to www.longcovid.physio and on that website, there is our podcast section. Uh, podcasts are available on all different platforms, including Spotify. Uh, so you're very welcome to access them there. And I'm on Twitter at uh, Darren A. Brown. Brilliant. I've just posted that into the comments for the, the places I can post it to. If you're watching on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, etc., hopefully you've got that. So you can click longcovid.physio, that title again. Thank you so much for your time, Jeremy, especially a bit of an extra few minutes at the end. Now I've been cheeky and taken a bit more of your time. Um, thanks as ever and good luck with your recovery. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. Okay, thanks everyone. Really appreciate it. And uh, as I mentioned on, on Twitter the other day, We've got a busy, busy shows, uh, busy week of shows with guests all the way through. Tomorrow, I've got Karen Lay, who is the chair of the uh, of Physio First. Uh, they're talking about um, what's it called now? Any accredited? Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fluffing my lines. I'll revise it for tomorrow. Look at me. What am I saying? It's the um, accredit their accreditation scheme for qualified clinics and practitioners. And um, we're going to be discussing that as well as then on Friday, I've got Ty, who's from the 
um, active force dynamometry that we're selling and distributing and marketing because we've been working with them to try and refine it for MSK use. And uh, so we're really excited to get the CEO of Active Body, uh, Silicon, Silicon Valley, uh, San Francisco based company, um, who've been come up with a device that I think is really going to change again. If we can get these into the hands of, of clinicians in MSK practice, then I do think that that measurement that we can bring to bear uh, and the accuracy that that device will allow for means that the patient feedback that they were going to be able to get in real time is going to be fantastic. So please do join me for that. Uh, two great shows planned for the rest of this week. And of course, Therapy Live Pelvic Health on Saturday, raising standards in pelvic and women's health and trying to integrate that within MSK and wider healthcare. Getting away from these silly silos and learning lessons, uh, including like what Darren's been saying there, let's upskill, up understand things and be better at getting it right first time. We've talked about it for too long. Let's uh, improve and raise standards together in unison. So thanks as ever, and I'll see you soon.